Thank you, Robert, for the smiley faces on my sermon notes. I, I wish you guys could see this. I, I actually prayed he would be on his best behavior this morning. Ooh. I guess that is. <laughs> when I first started preaching, by the way, a few years ago, he, he threatened, it actually invited the entire congregation to stand at the back of the room and hold up placards, like one through 10, then grade me. So thank you for not doing that. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have made it through seminary, but I do appreciate the smiley faces. They make my day. Anyway, um, I have actually been accused a time or two in my life of being a Pollyanna. And I say accused because if, like me, you happen to look on the bright side of things now and then, you know that when people call you a Pollyanna, it is usually not a compliment. It means that you're not a realist or that you have pie-in-the-sky kind of hopes for things or even sometimes that I'm just a little too cheerful. But I was reminded this week that the real meaning of a Pollyanna comes from an old book, a children's book, called Pollyanna. And it was written over 100 years ago. It tells the story of a young orphaned girl who is taken in by her rather unpleasant aunt, because I've also decided that all children's books have some sort of a horrible aunt lurking in their family tree. You remember Mark Twain's Aunt Sally or Aunt Pity Pat from um, Gone with the Wind and Harry Potter had his Aunt Petunia. Everybody seems to have one of these aunts. And so anyway, Pollyanna is determined to find some way to look on the bright side of her new circumstances living with her aunt, Polly. So she creates this game that she calls the glad game in which she tries to find something, anything, to be happy about in every situation. So, for example, when she arrives at the train station for the very first time, her, her father has just died, and she takes the train off to, to this new world that she's going to be living in, and her aunt sends a servant, except that Pollyanna doesn't know that. So she greets the servant and says, Aunt Polly, I'm so glad that you have come to meet me at the train station. And the servant looks at her and says, I'm not your aunt. She stayed home. Now, most of us might think of that as sort of embarrassing, a little case of mistaken identity, or we might be hurt that the aunt didn't make the effort to come and greet us under these circumstances, but not Pollyanna. No, see, Pollyanna looks at her aunt's servant, and she thinks for a second, and she says, well, I'm glad that she didn't come and meet me because now I still have to look forward to meeting her and I have you as a new friend. And it's sort of silly, actually really silly to imagine that. And if you happen to be connecting the dots of the Pollyanna story, the glad game, and Mary's Magnificat that we just heard, then that is excellent theological work on your part, I have to say. <laughs> Because it took some doing for me, but if you need a little assistance connecting those dots, then let's work on this together. An angel of the Lord has just appeared to a young teenaged Mary, and in what we can only assume was probably the most frightening thing in her life up to this point, the angel announces to her that she is about to give birth, that she is with child. You all know that Mary was engaged, but not yet married. And as a fact that would no doubt have dire circumstances 
for a young, teenaged, pregnant girl in her day and age. So Mary probably ran through all the likely scenarios of breaking the news to Joseph, breaking off an engagement potentially, telling her distraught parents. How in the world was she going to cover up with clothing, the obvious, all at the same time trying to wrap her brain around this heavenly visitor and this news of miraculous generation of life that was now within her. <clears throat> Perplexed might be a word we would use to describe our own reaction if we were in that situation, scared, anxious, maybe depressed, disbelieving, alarmed, fearful, stunned, worried, all of those would be appropriate reactions. But not Mary. We're told that Mary hurries off to see her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth is also pregnant and soon to give birth to someone we will know as John the Baptist. What transpires next is so fun. These two women embrace each other. A baby leaps for joy in his mother's womb. Blessings are shared. Astonishment is expressed. Songs are sung. There is laughter and celebration all by two pregnant women, one young, unwed, and poor, the other well past the point where she should have been able to conceive. And yet, here they are, two lowly women about to birth the future. Their story is earthy and vivid and so real. And it is completely nuts. It's upside down from what anyone would expect. A king who comes not through lines of royalty, not in a posh palace with velvet walls and a royal staff to take care of every need, but a king who comes to us in a manger, surrounded by barnyard animals, and placed in his unwed mother's arms. No wonder the two women had uproarious laughter who would have thunk that this could have happened? And so Mary's song of praise, this Magnificat that we just heard, is also upside down from what we expect. Rather than a lament about her circumstances, it actually proves to serve as a balm even for us today in this weary world. It's an example of positivity. It's an example of trust that puts even the glad game to shame. The famous verses of scripture which we just heard start out with these familiar words, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul rejoices in the Lord my Savior. But I want to share with you, I like the way that the message translation has this. It says, I'm bursting with God news. I'm dancing the song of my Savior. God took one good look at me, and look what happened, Mary says. I'm the most fortunate woman on earth. What God has done for me will never be forgotten. The God whose very name is holy, set apart from others, his mercy 
flows in wave after wave on those who are in awe before him. Mercy flows in wave after wave for those who are in awe before him. Mary had such a confidence in faith. At best, it might seem kind of elusive to us. At worst, it might seem Pollyanna-ish. But if we look closely, we see a strategy for how to comfortably rest in our discomfort. The strategy is this. Mary's confidence is based on what God has already done, not on what God might yet do. Put another way, it's a simple little word, trust. But we all know that trust is anything but simple. Just ask every marriage therapist ever. <laughs> trust is the very foundation of relationships. Re friendships, families, colleagues, businesses, marriages, they all make it or break it because of trust. When trust breaks down, relationships suffer. In fact, I was reading recently about one CEO uh, who was interviewed in a Harvard Business Review uh, article, and he and Stephen Covey, the leading relation, or, um, leadership expert, were talking about the issue of trust, and the CEO said, trust is the one thing that changes everything. He said, it's not a nice to have, it's a gotta have. Without trust, every part of an organization falls into disrepair. With trust, he said, all things are possible. Now, if that last little line sounds somewhat familiar to you, reminds you of a little beloved verse of scripture that we have, then excellent. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he too says, what may be impossible for humans is not impossible for God, because all things are possible with God. Trust is critical in making things happen in business, and trust in God is critical because God makes all things possible. Yet still, we are human, and we like facts and results and data and proven track records. And so even with God, we sometimes withhold our trust. And then we wind up looking for God in the grand gestures of our lives, the scary moments that often require miracles, and the uncertain moments when we need blaring signals to tell us what is our next right move. But God, while always capable of the grand gesture, is just as likely to show up in the details, details that we humans are prone to overlooking. Someone said to me this week that trust is a million little things. And in, in her new book, uh, Brene Brown says that trust-earning behaviors are, in fact, not the heroic deeds. She says that trust is the stacking and layering of the small moments over time. It's listening. It's paying attention. It's gestures of genuine care and connection. It's the friend who shows up when you need her the most, 
It's showing up when you say you will. It's a cup of coffee delivered to you every single morning. It's knowing when you've wronged someone close to you and saying, I'm sorry. It's noticing. When we trust, it's because someone has proven themselves worthy of that trust over time. And only in relationship can trust be built or destroyed. So Mary, confronted with a life-altering, world-transforming predicament, knew that God could be trusted. How? Listen again to the words of her hymn that day as she joyfully celebrated with Elizabeth. Her words are not about what God yet might yet do, as I said, but rather Mary focuses on what God has already done. God has shown strength. God has scattered the proud. God has brought down the mighty. God has lifted up the, whole, the lowly. God has filled the hungry. God has sent the rich away empty. God has helped his people. When the time came that the angel Gabriel announced the good news that Mary was to bear a son, Mary stepped forward with the confidence of her faith. Her words of praise for God, even in the face of massive uncertainty, spoke of the redeeming work that had already occurred in the world. This is her confidence. This is ours. So then, what about our friends in Psalm 80, which we read just a few minutes ago in our opening prayer? I leaned over to Robert and said, well, those are sort of depressing. But I thought about this before today. The words of the psalmist in that, in that prayer are pleading and desperate and seeking. How long, they ask. You have fed us, God, a steady sorrow, a steady diet of sorrow. You have made us drink tears by the bucketful. You have made us the scorn of our neighboring nations. How long will you be angry with our prayers, they ask. Show us your mighty power. Come and save us. On the one hand, it appears to be the total opposite of, of Mary's celebratory prayer. In fact, it sounds a lot like the whining, blaming language of people who refuse to take responsibility for their own actions. Who would dare to complain to the Almighty? Certainly not Mary. But heard another way, the same language gives voice to the people's utter dependence on God, their utter trust. Why else cry out to him? You see, sometimes we are like Mary. We're laughing at the way that God has turned things 180 degrees from what we expected. And sometimes we're the psalmist, laying our sorrows at God's feet, not because we want to hear the sound of our own complaints, but because we have nowhere else to lay them. We are utterly dependent, and we cry out, come and save us. And that prayer, that beseeching, soulful prayer is an offering. When hope seems lost and nothing, nothing 
that we do seems to make any difference. We cry out, and God is with us. We test God every day, every year, every generation. We test God, and God always proves to be worthy of our utter and complete trust. Elizabeth said to Mary, happy is she who has faith that the Lord's promise to her would be fulfilled. But I also say, happy are those whose faith is shaky and who cry out in sadness and uncertainty and despair and yet trusting, even holding that trust ever so lightly, but trusting in a God who is good and whose mercy flows in wave after wave after wave. And how do we know that? Because when God's people cried out to be rescued, God sent a savior. God sent us a mere baby in the most humble setting, in the most human sense. God was born of Mary and became man, one of us, one with us. And perhaps Mary sensed in the moment that the angel appeared to her, this is no ordinary thing, she likely thought. God is with us. And knowing that to the very core of her being, how can Mary not fall into that? with anything but the total and complete joy-filled trust and expectation. You see, in the light of that, seen in the light of that confidence, Mary's Magnificat is hardly the words of a young woman putting a positive spin on things. She wasn't putting a positive spin on her own dire circumstances. Hers are not just pretty words meant to flesh out Luke's nativity gospel a little more. The Magnificat is a celebration of the upside-down nature of God's plans for you and I. And it could easily be our words, too, exclaimed in astonishment and wonder at these great good lives, regardless of circumstance. Pollyanna, it turns out, learned her own optimism from her father, who had what he called his rejoicing words. And he said that he often referred to the Bible for those passages that would uplift and encourage him in hard times. So Pollyanna turned it into her own childhood game. And the story goes that Pollyanna even transformed her own Aunt Polly through her cheerfulness. Imagine that. Wouldn't that be something if we could transform people, not through arguing and debating and putting other people down, but by sheer force of a positive outlook? Pollyanna isn't someone who is foolishly optimistic, denying reality as it were. Pollyanna is someone with a childlike faith trusting God in all of life's upsides, upside downs and topsy-turvy ways. A Pollyanna is someone who rejoices in our God, who looks with favor on us all. And may we all be filled with joy at the good news that Mary brings.
Emmanuel, God is with us. Amen.